it's easy to think that you can do something great when the market's real free and everybody's spending money and money's flowing and all the stuff is happening. It's the people who get creative when there's this perception of lack that actually do really well and will always succeed because that's where the opportunities really are. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole for what we call spend culture. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Spend Culture Stories podcast. So today I'm super excited um, because you know me, I love talking to fellow women in tech and I love talking to female founders specifically. So today we're joined with Cynthia Del Aria. She is the CEO and co-founder of Rika Technologies, a company that works with small business owners to turn their tech ideas into higher profits and higher margins for their business. So Cynthia is super passionate about helping new app and tech entrepreneurs spend as little time and money as possible evaluating the idea and getting them to a go or no-go decision quickly and efficiently. And of course, if you're a startup owner yourself, you know that um, getting your product to market is something that's super difficult, just getting that start. So super happy to have Cynthia here with us. Hi, Cynthia. Hi, Danny. Good to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's great to be here. For sure. And, you know, I love having fellow women um, entrepreneurs on the show. I just think it's really great to kind of hear your story from your perspective. And I was reading a little bit about your bio and I was honestly really impressed by your background, how you had an exit at age 19 and had how you basically started quite a few businesses. So maybe you can tell the viewers a little bit more about your background as an entrepreneur. Yeah, happy to. When I was eight years old, my mom was taking some classes doing like networking and she had a bunch of books laying around and I love to read, can't get enough of books. I had run out of stuff to read and a couple of her coding books were laying around specifically around like visual basic. And I picked one up and I just kind of started reading through it. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. And this totally makes sense. And so I opened up the program and started putting stuff in and it took me like three days to get through the whole book. And then there was like 3d objects floating around the screen. And it just was like <laughs> the coolest thing. Right. And um, so yeah. I got really interested in learning new languages. I got really interested in learning how to code for the internet. And then when I was 15, uh, I had been building websites and things like that. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of business owners in my church who aren't on the internet yet. And so I basically like started a business convincing business owners in my church to let me build websites for them. And the way that I sold it was you really need to be on the web because this is like the phone book of the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. So I built that company. And when I was 19, it kind of turned into something bigger than I ever intended it to be. When I was 19, I actually won a contract that was like really, really coveted by a bunch of other companies around town that I sometimes bid against or competed against for bids. And I ended up winning it because my company was small and we were able to get stuff done way cheaper than a lot of our competitors. So one of my competitors, after we won this particular contract, because it was very, very high profile, they came to me and said, look, we'll buy all of your other contracts from you if you will transition this one. So we did. And, you know, it was sort of like I went from just doing a thing, building websites to all of a sudden here I am 19 years old and selling my company. And 
the biggest thing is that I, I grew up very, very poor. <laughs> so I didn't really have a lot of money as a kid. And so here I am, 19 years old. I have all this money. And I, I had no idea what to do with it, like none. And so it was about eight months later, I was living in my car and scratching my head going, what the heck happened? And how did I get this so wrong, right? So I started up my second company because, you know, I went from having money to needing money. And it was doing very early key algorithm and encryption technology for online distribution of downloads and updates for software. Uh, taking traditionally bought software companies and turning them into online updates and then eventually online distributions. So about four years later, there was a company that was buying up a bunch of small companies that had pieces of technology that they really liked in this area. And so my company kind of got rolled into that acquisition. So here I was again, 26 or 27 <laughs> years old, uh, selling my company. I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to waste all the money again. Like I'm going to be smart this time. Right. And so this was like summer of 2007 and I decided to invest in some commercial real estate. And uh, I'm sure enough of your people are in the United States that they all know what's coming. I did invest in a commercial building. Uh, it was about 92% occupied at the time that I did that by a year later in August, 2008, we were at 12% and I was writing checks for like $15,000 a month. <laughs> And so I ended up getting out of that. And I said to myself, you know what, I'm better in tech, I'm better building and running startups. So we're going to stick with that. A few years after that, I built my third startup, which is a SaaS company that does bidding for pilots and crew for the airline industry. And then um, now I'm also I, I run Rika, which is sort of like a incubator, like you were saying. But I also am in the process of building another startup, which is a fintech startup doing high-risk transaction processing. So lots of companies that I've built, I've built over 75 or 80 companies now for other people, whether it's first-time entrepreneurs. Um, I do a lot. I specialize a lot working with business owners who are in like a non-tech space, so like a service-based industry or something like that, who want to add a technology component to their existing business. Um, I do a lot of work in that area. And also working with bigger companies that are looking to bring new products and services to market. So I've sort of like product market fit and idea validation is like completely my jam. So, <laughs> and that's normally the hardest part, right? You, you know, you see a lot of like these business owners, they get something up and running, but then they realize that the fit isn't there. So they end up wasting all this bunch of um, investment money in the beginning. And like before it's actually time for them to figure out what the market was. Yeah, it's exactly right. And actually, I was just telling um, this story. I had I had lunch with this guy. It's got to be over a year ago now. And he spent basically $250,000, four and a half years of his life. He had mortgaged his house to get the money to put into the initial development of his app and, and the marketing and everything. And he had, at the end of four and a half years, he had almost no sales. And he was like, he was oh, no. like, I don't know what happened. And he said, you know, we'd never had a mortgage on our house before. So about a year and a half ago, my wife left me and she took the house and I lost half my retirement. And now I'm like, you know, he, he I think he was in his late forties and he's like, and now I'm looking at getting a job with somebody else. And that's really weird because I've worked for myself for the last four years. And, and he's like, but I can't do it anymore because all I've been doing is like hemorrhaging money. And I was like, well, did you talk to people before you started it? Like, did you go find out who your people were and how many there were and what they were willing to spend and what they really needed? And he was like, 
well, no. And I was like, darn. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. <laughs> oh, not good. So not good. So. <laughs> So how do you kind of work with um, business owners on that end with um, suggesting them how to find that part product market fit? I work with people uh, in a eight week webinar kind of series format. And we start out by saying, get out of your head everything you can possibly think of about your idea. Because what happens is, you know, people think, oh, it's this thing. And then they focus so much on that. And there's all these other like thoughts and and ideas swirling around in there that they can't ever focus. So if we get it all out on paper, then it's not swirling around in your brain and you can focus and you can actually dig in. And then we figure out what's really MVP. And there's, there's like a bunch of different steps to that, but it involves making sure that the thing that's MVP actually solves a real problem for real people and that your solution resonates with those people so that they're willing to spend money change their habits or ideally both in order to have that problem get solved. And so we, we go through the whole world of customer validation and product validation and how do you remove bias? Because a lot of times people think they're talking to people and having really good discovery conversations, but they're inserting their own hypotheses and their own ideas into the conversation in a way that draws out of the other person response to that rather than asking questions in a way that draws out of the other person what are they really looking for and what would really be useful? So it's, it's a really different way of conducting the conversations. And I do quite a bit of training with people around how to have those conversations in a way that is authentic and it's conversational, but so they are actually getting real mm-hmm. value out of having the conversation with somebody. And so once we've identified what really is the right MVP Then we look at how do we monetize it? And we have the build versus buy conversation. You know, you don't always have to build custom software to get to your end goal for your MVP. And the great thing is once you have traction, then you can get investors to come in and give you money to grow and build your own software and eventually replace whatever platform or whatever third party system you might be using with that new product. But most of the time, you know, people are looking for investment money really, really early when it's just an idea. And the thing that, that, you know, you'll hear a lot is investors want to see traction. And so I try and get people to traction as cheaply and quickly as possible so that then they can go after revenue and then they can go after that investment capital. And they give away a lot less of their companies when they actually show that they can make revenue with what they're doing which is always a good thing. I want people to keep as much of their companies as they possibly can. (laughs) Totally. And that's so important, I think, is getting that traction up and running. You know, I've talked to a lot of seed stage startups where they've given away too much, I guess, like control of their company too early. And they kind of regret that later on because as startup founders, a lot of times they have a very strong vision for what they want to build. But once you get investors on board, that's when it kind of gets (laughs) a little bit difficult with those meetings, right? I'm sure you know. It's exactly right. It's exactly right. I mean, not only do investors want to take a lot for the amount of money they're going to put in, even if it doesn't seem like a lot of money, you know, the earlier stage you are, the more risky that investment is. But a lot of investors, especially if you're looking for ones who have knowledge of your industry, that can be a good or a bad thing, right? Like, it can be a good thing because they may understand if it takes you a little bit longer to get to where you're building a return or whatever. But it can also be that they can be too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, they can be putting inserting themselves into situations, whether it's appropriate or not. 
So it just, it gets kind of interesting. So the, the more that you can do to generate revenue and to show traction and to show that you have a thing that's really valuable, the better it's going to be not only for you, but also for investors who do eventually get involved with you. Definitely. And that's really good advice to give to any startup founder. So how would you recommend startup founders kind of approach this fundraising journey? So when do you think is a good time for them to start looking for investment? Yeah, it's a really great question. I would say as much as you can bootstrap, you should. And you should get as creative as you have to because you should wait as long as humanly possible before going after money. And the reason that I say that again is because not only do I want you to keep more of your company, but you're going to make you're going to make mistakes, you're going to learn from those mistakes, and if it's you on the line, it's a whole different conversation than the pressure and that sort of like outward feeling of other people being on the line on your behalf. It, it, it changes the tenor of the things that you do. And, you, you know, if you know that there's an investor sitting out there like waiting for you to produce a return, you know, you bad little entrepreneur, you um, <laughs> it might change the way that you take action or it might change the things that you do. And it may not be for the better. And certainly we want you to be doing things that are absolutely the right thing and absolutely the right timing for your company. And bootstrapping as much as you possibly can will absolutely make it that much more likely that you're going to get there and you're going to do it in a way that works for you. When you do start going out for capital, starting with friends and family is really great. And when you hear the term friends and family, a lot of people think, oh, well, I don't know anybody who's rich. It doesn't (laughs) exactly mean like you go to your dad or you go to your uncle or you go to your mom. Friends and family means people who are one or two degrees separated from you. It means you start having conversations with people in your network that you know, who then know people who are putting fifty dollars or $100,000 into companies that are, are seed stage or angel stage. So again, get creative because going to VC, which is venture capital, extremely, extremely expensive and the terms are never really very great. Doubly so with private equity. Private equity guys are usually looking for a 10x return in five years, and they never are interested in investing in a company where maybe you want to build something that's an ongoing concern where you're earning money and, and it, you know, it's, it's doing its thing and you're paying out dividends and, and you're happy with that. You know, going into mm-hmm. venture capital or private equity realms, those guys don't want an ongoing concern. They want to flip, they want their money out, and they want 5 to 10x return. They want it in a very short period of time. So if you're not looking for an exit, even more so, you got to get creative and you got to get strategic. So I think what you're doing really will dictate when is the right time to get capital and then how far down the rabbit hole of like private equity and VC are you really willing to go? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that's really good advice. I think there's so many opportunities for funding out there, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs where they get stuck on is, oh, well, money's always good because then I get more runway, but is the strategy or is the product market fit actually there? That's so exactly I think right. you had some really good feedback there. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the thing that I tell everybody is the product market fit has to be there. You should do that long before you ever get a developer involved. You should definitely be thinking about, I'm a huge fan of, and this kind of goes to your question about how to raise capital. I'm a huge fan of pre-selling. Now this is going to sound, mm-hmm. you know, we in some corners of the world, you will still hear this called vaporware, where you know we're we're selling something that we don't actually have yet. But 
there's actually a very good way to use this, which is if you can build a good story and if you can say, okay, if you know this is how much it's going to take you to build this thing and this is how long it's going to take you, pre-selling can sometimes look like going to a group of end users who are your ideal end user and saying, would you be willing to, this is sort of where crowdfunding campaigns came out of, but going to those end users and saying, would you be willing to sign a contract that's based on when this thing launches for one year? That's as good as money to an investor as a signed contract saying, the first year of my service is going to cost me $10,000. I'm willing to sign a contract to that effect that when you launch this, if it meets all of these measures, that I'll buy. Um, and if you can get 10 of those, that's a whole different thing, right? So pre-selling not only gives you some validation for the amount of money that you are going to put in, but it also gives some investors some validation too. And so that, you know, friends and family or seed investor or angel investor will probably feel like they can give you a little bit more positive terms on that, you know, mm -hmm. a better term sheet on the money they're going to give you because you went out and did some pre-selling. And that can be a really great way to either raise early money or validate and then before you actually spend money on doing a build. So, yeah, that's really good advice. So we kind of talked a little bit about, you know, getting the startup up and running and validating the market. So let's say we pass the fundraising stage. Let's say, okay, we got the angel investors on board or the friends and family on board. How do we make sure that startup founders are not spending the money the wrong way? How would you advise that? Mm. This is where having done all of your product market fit and building your pro forma beforehand will make sure that you don't spend money in the wrong ways. Because in order to build your pro forma, you're going to have to go through and say, okay, in order to get to the end of year one and launch, this is going to cost me 350 grand. Well, if you know that you don't actually have 350 grand, you're, on, you're going to have to get pretty creative in order to make that pro forma work. The pro forma is the plan. So the best way to make sure that you spend money on only the things that are really matter, that are really important to getting you to your goal is to stick to the plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. A lot of times what happens is I'll see, I'll see founders, they, you know, they work with me for eight weeks and they do all the work and they're, they're, they have the plan. And then the second they hire a developer, they start spending money on all these things that are nowhere in their plan. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa what happened? <laughs> oh, well, well, we have money. So I figured we should go do all this stuff. And I'm like, you need to stick to the plan. The money actually goes towards getting you to launch. Like, don't forget that. So however you've laid out that plan, stick to it because that's the best way to make sure you lose as little money and time as possible is by sticking to the plan. <laughs> mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, startups always um, try to stay agile, right? Like even though um, they might've launched their product and they're getting pretty good traction, you see like an opportunity that's there that's for marketing or maybe unlocking a new channel. So they want to experiment as they are growing. So how can you kind of balance being agile, but also being fiscally responsible while sticking to your goals, like what you mentioned? Hmm, it's a really good question. So the thing that I usually tell people um, who ask a question like this is, remember that until you get to market, like the thing that you get to market, it should be one thing that you do exceptionally well that solves as painful a problem as possible for people. If you're trying to change that up too much before you get to market, then you probably didn't do good enough product market fit work and you probably need to go back to that. So 
I'm not so worried about the ability to be agile between the time when I have, when I know that my plan is good and I get to market, it's after you're into, into the market that really matters. And the way that you mm-hmm. do all the right things is you don't put anything into your roadmap and you don't work on anything that isn't a priority for your users. So mm-hmm. if, if you think something's really cool, I mean, that's great. Like we all want to build cool stuff, but here's the thing. Uh, CB Insights, Crunchbase, their research group did a study in 2018 where they, they did a postmortem on a bunch of uh, startups that failed that year. It was like a thousand startups. What they found was 42% of those startups failed because nobody wanted what they were building. That is still the case after launch. So let's say you do all the right stuff, you get through product market fit, you do all the right things, and then you get to launch, and then you decide you're going to build all your cool stuff and you forget about your customer. You're going to fail. <laughs> so you got to keep going back to the customer and asking them, what's the next most painful thing I could solve for you? Or what are the things surrounding the pain point that we're solving now that would be more useful that we could add on? Because when you do it that way, not only are you definitely meeting the needs of the market, but also you have like new revenue streams built in because there may be some things that you add into the product they're already paying for, but there may be some other things that are add-ons or their additional fees or their upgrades, like new plans. And that's really what you're looking for. And the best way to do that and the best way to keep your customers and to keep them happy and to keep growing is to ask them what they want. <laughs> hmm I mean, I think it's like such straightforward advice, but it's surprising to hear how some startup founders, they don't actually talk to the end customers or they don't get the developers to talk to the end customers. And I think that's kind of a gap that that differentiates between really great companies versus the good ones. Yeah, completely. And I would say that having relying on your developers to talk to your customers, probably not the best idea because <laughs> developers are kind of like they have their own ideas about what they want to build and they don't always listen really great, but definitely talking to your customers. It's, it's the thing that people, I, I know that I hear people say, Oh, I'm afraid somebody's going to steal my idea or they might take it and run with it and build it. And you know, the reality is the people that you're talking to, the reason they have the problem is because they don't know how to solve it. They've been waiting for you to come along and ask them what they need so that you can build it for them. And there was a time in the mid to late 90s when small startups were, were building cool ideas and big companies like Apple or Microsoft would swoop in and like steal the idea out from under them and go build it, right? Mm-hmm. Not only was that bad press, but nowadays big companies have realized that hey, wait, 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 we don't need to spend money figuring out if there's a market and developing that market and building that market. We can let all these little companies do all the things that they're going to do to figure that out for us. And then we'll go buy the ones that do the best. That's mm-hmm. the culture now. So that's what I, how I usually speak to the, the concern about, oh, somebody's going to steal my idea. Yeah, maybe. But if they get to market before you, learn what they did badly and don't do that. Do better than them, you know, or do it cheaper, or do it faster. There's always a way to improve because if it was your idea originally and someone stole it from you, they're never going to be able to do it as well as you can. That's true. 
<laughs> it's really interesting because sometimes, you know, people talk about the first mover advantage, but you're kind of saying also there's like a second mover advantage too, where you can learn from the mistakes. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I mean, look at Lyft, right? Uber had the first mover advantage, but Lyft learned a lot from what happened with Uber. Now, Uber kind of dragged Lyft down a little bit with some of the things that happened, but that was also that was also a function of the market. In reality, Lyft came out much stronger in the beginning because they learned the things that didn't work from the way that Uber went out into the market first. So definitely. And they offer like pretty much the same product. Maybe some, you know, Lyft fans will hate me for saying this, but personally, I use either. It's the same. I don't know. I mean, a guy shows up, I get in the car, I end up where I'm supposed to be and I pay it. Like it's the same, right? <laughs> exactly. So it's pretty interesting how we're seeing a lot of players in the market, but they all still do well. Like even, I don't know if um you have this in US, but skip the dishes. We have that in Canada. And then we also have Uber Eats. So they all do like the similar model. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have Uber Eats. And then we have like DoorDash, which I think is the same thing. There's always a piece of a pie for everybody. Hey? That's right. That's right. I mean, there are some markets that are super crowded. If you're going into the hotel space, you got to be pretty much a standout. So that's a, that's a really crowded market. But I've seen companies come up with really creative solutions and get half a percent or a percent of the, of the market, even in a crowded space. And as long as as long as a small sliver is enough to make you profitable and to deliver on your ROI and your value, why not? Why the heck not? Mm -hmm. You know? Absolutely. I think a lot of startup founders, they chase like that amazing grand idea. But you know, what you've kind of highlighted in our conversation is that sometimes it's just about really solving one pain point really, really well. And it could even be something really small and that still adds value. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And a lot of times the most painful things are the small things and nobody's solving it because it seems, and I'm putting quotes around this, it seems small, but sometimes those are the ones that are the biggest gold mines because there's nobody doing it. And if it really is that painful, people will pay a lot of money to have those things solved. Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely, like even when, um, you know, I do my role here at Procurify, I think of, oh, I wish someone made something to solve X problem. But yeah. then I go online, I, I don't see anybody doing it. I'm like, maybe I should just go for it. <laughs> maybe I should build that thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not, right? That's right. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a lot of listeners in the show who are accountants and startup CFOs. Mm -hmm. And I know you work with a lot of earlier stage startups where they might not even have a head of finance. So in your opinion, when do you think it's a good time to bring in someone that holds the purse strings that kind of controls the spending from a more strategic lens? As soon as humanly possible. My pro formas generally tend to be pretty intense, pretty in-depth forecasting. Um, mm -hmm. I don't have a CPA background personally, but I do have a math background. Uh, I studied pure mathematics and statistics and all that kind of jazz in, in college. Having someone whose motivation is to save money for the company, you need that immediately because most founders, that's not their motivation. Their motivation is going to be, oh, if I just do this, then it's going to be fine. Or if I, you know, it goes back to what we we're talking about earlier, right? Like sticking to the plan. Yeah. Even if you have somebody who's like your penny pinching friend and you pay them 5% equity to look at, look at your budget every month and hold you to it, do it. Because inevitably, it will be the thing that keeps you on track versus, you know, where companies get off and they end up spending money on things that they really don't need to spend money on and that don't contribute to them getting to where they want to be. So the sooner, the better. 
the fintech company that I'm in, I'm actually the acting CFO for that company. We don't have funding yet. And already I'm holding the guy's feet to the fire. I'm like, look, guys, <laughs> this is what we have to deliver on. Here's the numbers you told me until I see these numbers. I'm not changing the expense ratios. So don't ask, like, don't come asking for stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And then for our company, we've had, we've had a, uh, you know, a vendor, third party bookkeeper and CPA since day one. You know, it's that and legal are the two things that you absolutely cannot, cannot skimp on. You can't skip spending money on those things. Um, because they are the things that ensure that you're doing everything correctly and that you have the best chance possible. Absolutely. Yeah. I would second that. Good. And I think a lot of um, the accountants that are listening to this, they are kind of advocating for this too. But we've had incidents when we um, talk to a lot of startup founders where they're like, oh, we don't, we didn't actually bring in a CFO until Series B. It's pretty shocking because um, the CEO is kind of acting as like the CFO too, but the their priorities kind of not really align, not, you know, a functional role. Yeah. 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 Oftentimes, I mean, it seems like CEO is number one, man. CFO is number two. They are the number Mm -hmm. two in line. And and the reason is because the motivations are different and it requires that holistic view of both sides of that coin in order to make a company successful. So I'm always shocked when I see companies that are, I mean, there's a lot of companies that get to series B or series C or series F and are never profitable and really aren't successful. You know, they end up going under because they can't make money. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of those companies are the ones that early on don't have someone in that CFO role and don't have someone, you know, doing that, that uh, purse string management. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, the downturn, because right now, obviously, it's a pretty difficult time, even though we're technically kind of returning to normal. But as we mentioned um, earlier, when we connected, we don't really know what normal looks like. So how do you kind of pivot your business to really react to black swan events like the coronavirus incident, or let's say if the stock market suddenly went down a few hundred points? Yeah. So the first thing, especially for small businesses or for startups, is to not panic. You know, that that's Mm -hmm. the thing that I've seen a lot of in the last couple of months. It's like, look, this is a global event. The question you have to ask yourself is, did the actual value of my company really change or not? Is the thing that I'm proposing to do, is my critical value, is it still a critical value? So that's the first thing to look at. And and that's a gut check. Okay. So assuming that for most people, what they were going after, the problems they're solving haven't changed. Now, maybe in the short term, the people they're solving them for, those priorities have changed. That's okay. So first of all is don't panic. The second thing is, Look and see if there are pivots or tangential businesses or tangential offerings or even complementary offerings that would take your service and elevate it to meet the people where they are now. So what you're going to see, it's really interesting because every time there's like a dip or a recession in the market, you see a whole flurry of businesses in the following six to nine months that get created that are almost recession-proof businesses because they're solving problems in a recession. If you can do that, you can solve problems for people whether times are good or whether they're bad. So don't panic and then look for the small pivots or the additions to what you're already doing that would allow you to solve the problems that people who are in your target market who had your problem as a a pain point to begin with 
what's that next level thing that they're dealing with as a result of this massive change that's happened? Because oftentimes you will find new business lines or a tiny little pivot that again, opens up your market and takes you from tiny to really big. I love that. And I think it's really great to see, you know, within a crisis that there's an opportunity. This is something that I see a lot in people who have the entrepreneur's mindset, where they don't look at failure as failures, but learnings, and they see times of crisis as a place for opportunities to grow. Yeah, totally. That is always the opportunity and change, right? Like it's easy to think that you can do something great when the market's real free and everybody's spending money and money's flowing and all this stuff is happening. It's the people who get creative when there's this perception of lack that actually do really well and will always succeed because that's where the opportunities really are. To turn a phrase on its on its head a little bit, but mother nature abhors a vacuum, right? Necessity mm-hmm. is the mother of invention. So look at what people need now and create something that fills that need. You know, and the more the more agile and the more light-footed you can do it. So spending as little money as possible, getting to market as quickly as possible, really exploring, do I really need to build custom software or is there a platform as a service or a third-party thing out there that I could modify a little bit to do what I need it to do and that would get me out there cheaper and faster so I could be solving this problem now? Look at all that stuff because the more creative you are and the more you're looking at solving the problems that exist today, the more successful you're going to be. Absolutely. And I think we've seen a lot of startups that are really well-known companies now that were founded in the last recession. So I'm really excited to see what comes out of this one. Yeah. uh, Stripe and Venmo were both founded during the last recession. See, there we go. That's right. Stripe's (laughs) getting ready to IPO, I think, next summer. And they're a unicorn for sure. Like a real actual legitimate unicorn because they actually have revenue. But (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's like, there's hope for a lot of startup founders out there. You know, if you're listening to this and your startup is going through some stuff right now, what Cynthia has mentioned, see this as an opportunity and see how you can pivot to make sure that you survive, but also thrive throughout this time. Absolutely. The the opportunity is absolutely there. And small business owners, small, you know, brand new entrepreneurs, you're the creative ones, man. That's the lifeblood of any economy. That's the source of innovation. It's the source of moving us through a time like this back to a time where things are good. It's people innovating and it's people creating. And that comes from entrepreneurs. It's no accident that in the U.S., you know, something like 75% or more of the businesses in the U.S. are um, considered small businesses and employ over 90% of the people. (laughs) You know, that's Mm -hmm. not an accident. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Those are like the lifeblood of the economy. That's right. It's exactly right. Yeah. So Cynthia, I don't want to keep you for too long. So maybe we can end off this conversation with something a little bit more about yourself. So this is something I always like to ask um, all the guests. And I think it's a really great way to kind of get a little bit vulnerable. So tell me about your most embarrassing moment you had so far. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry to put you on the spot there. It's something we do at Procurify. (laughs) Most embarrassing moment. Holy moly. I can think of a gazillion times of being like a kid and falling on your face or, oh, here's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) I was on stage at an event. This was probably about two years ago. And as I was walking out the door, one of my dogs got sick and threw up on my shoes. And so last minute I had to change my shoes 
I was wearing boots and uh, I, I pulled out of the closet a, another pair of boots that I had and just kind of, it was a diff- little bit different, but it, you know, it was fine. And I was just walking off the stage when I realized that this new pair of boots that I had put on, I actually have a pair of them in black and a pair in brown. And I was wearing one of each all night. <laughs> so there are like videos of me giving this talk and pictures of me on this stage. And I have two different color shoes on. <laughs> you know what? That's a really unique style. Maybe people thought you actually put them on not by accident, but because you wanted to. Hey, I mean, there's an argument to make for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, yeah, pretty funny. <laughs> You know what, like with these moments, it's embarrassing when you look back, but when you don't know that it's happening, it's like, whatever. You know what? It was one of the best talks I had ever given. And I was really super confident and I felt so good. And it wasn't until I literally was walking off the stage that I looked down and I was like, oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm sure because you gave such a good talk that people weren't looking at your shoes. So I'm I'm sure sure it went really well. I mean, actually, I sent one of the photos to a friend of mine and she was like, oh yeah, you are wearing two different color shoes. I didn't even notice. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That's an awesome story. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. Well, I love the conversation that we had today. I personally learned so much and I was actually really inspired by a lot of things that you said. You know, right now, even though it's a hard time for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's really like a great area for opportunity. And, you know, you have such great advice for first time entrepreneurs to really find that product market fit and how to really leverage this whole new channel of startups and how do you scale a company from start to finish? Yes, exactly right. Thank you so much for for having me on today. This has been really fun. And I hope that your audience has gotten some value out of it today because that's that's always what I want for people. Absolutely. And just curious, how can uh, people find you and if they wanted to ask you any other questions? Yeah, totally. So the place to start is always our website. So it's rikatech.com, R-A-I-K-A-T-E-C-H.com. And from there, you can find our social media. Um, we have a couple blogs, one that's more tech related, one that's more business related. I do the startup therapy couch videos. Um, they're like two minute or less videos on whatever the hot topic of many of my entrepreneurs are today. Um, and nice. you can find all that stuff from rikitech.com. Perfect. And I'll link that within the corresponding blog post as well. So you guys don't have to try to type it while listening here. (laughs) Right fast. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Cynthia. And I hope um, you have the great rest of your week. And I'll let you know when the episode's live. Perfect. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for tuning in on another episode of Spend Culture Stories. If you like the series, please support us by leaving us a positive review on iTunes or Stitcher. And be sure to subscribe so you can get notified of the newest episodes. We try to post every episode every Wednesday. This podcast is sponsored by Procurify, a software solution that is reinventing the way organizations spend. Procurify allows an accessible and convenient way to request for purchases, get approval from your manager, while allowing your finance team to get the visibility and control you need on every purchase. Learn more about Procurify at www.procurify.com.